0: Hello, listeners. My name is Tashara, and welcome to another episode of the LSC Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Prakash Kannan. Prakash is the Managing Director, Chief Economist, and Head of Total Portfolio Management for Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC, where he oversees the firm's medium-term global macro and asset allocation strategy. He previously worked at the Central Bank of Malaysia and the International Monetary Fund. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics from MIT, as well as a PhD in economics from Stanford. Prakash, how are you doing today?
1: I'm fine, thank you.
0: Great, so let's get started. Given your academic background, there could have been a variety of different career paths that you could have taken. What initially drew you to work in central banking, and how did you transition to working for the IMF and now GIC?
1: Thanks for the question, Shara. No, You know, sometimes it's uh, it's much easier to Rationalize these career choices after the fact rather than, than as you, you're kind of going through them. Because as you know, you know, sometimes it's it's just a function of what your opportunity set is at that time. But if I was to look back at my career choices, I think the common thread that I could put through all the different places that I've worked is really some notion of, of public. Service. And you know, this is whether it's for an international organization or a domestic uh, one, you know, there's always been this notion of uh, a sense of purpose that's kind of bigger than just uh, what the institution is. Uh, so, for example, the GIC, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, GIC is first and foremost an investment organization. But there is that kind of high role in, in the sense of, you know, managing Singapore's reserves, kind of contributing to the welfare of future generations, etc. And I would say even at the outset, that really is what kind of, of appealed to me. So yeah, so, so if I look back, you know, I, can, I can maybe in my older years kind of see, see some rationalization. I think uh, i run a rather common thread uh, across all my different roles.
0: Great. As GIC's chief economist, I'm sure there's no such thing as a typical day, but could you tell us more about your role and what you do?
1: Sure. So the role as uh, Chief Economist uh, at GIC kind of has two broad responsibilities. So the first is really about mapping out the outlook for the investment environment. And, you know, this goes beyond just the outlook for growth, inflation, uh, interest rate, but also some of the portfolio relevant fees. Uh, So one of the things that's really unique about GIC is that we're a long-term investor. Uh, and we really take that concept of long-term seriously. So, you know, any, any of these themes which have a lifespan of, you know, 5, 10, even 20 years, these are things which, uh, within my role and within the role of my team, we kind of actually dedicate resource to resources to, to try to think about it. Uh, so, for example, you know, these issues around climate change and sustainability, these have become a, a, a big focus with a lot of subset themes that come out from that, whether it's energy transition, carbon taxation, et cetera. So that was kind of the the first broad role, which is the investment environment and some of the relevant. The second responsibility is in a way, kind of mapping that outlook into portfolio strategy. Uh, And I think that's the really uh, exciting, but also challenging part because sometimes it's it's not enough to to know the theme uh, or to identify the right ones but you also have to factor in what's already priced and that actually going back to the story of sustainability that in some in some areas that does become an issue uh, because you can identify it's the right theme you, you know it has all the right growth drivers but a lot of it could already be priced in and so either it becomes frothy or the returns end up being a lot and so that' That aspect of my job, which is then, you know, to try and map it back into a strategy. That's really where, you know, you rely a lot more on, on, on asset pricing and a lot more kind of finance theory rather than just a pure economist train.
0: Great. That's super interesting. And you touched upon this earlier, but for those unfamiliar, could you please explain more about GIC's role in the wider context of the Singaporean economy?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so GIC is one of uh, three entities in Singapore that manages uh, Singapore's uh, international reserves. The other two, one is MAS, which is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is uh, the central bank, and the third one is is uh, Tumasik, uh, which is another investment company. Uh, so, GIC really functions as as sovereign uh, wealth fund. Singapore, you know, we have we have investments in like uh, forty different uh, countries. Uh, we have offices in uh, in uh, ten different countries, uh, and we cover really the gamut uh, of, of investment opportunities across the public markets, private markets, uh, and across a range of different uh, uh, instruments. Where all of this kind of ties back to the Singapore economy is really on ultimately the the use of reserves. And that has multiple uh, uses, but I think the, the two that are particularly relevant to GIC, one is that the... Reserves that are managed by GIC is kind of used as an endowment uh, fund of sorts, and so every year a portion of GIC's reserves actually gets put back into the into the government budget. And so you know it's almost on a on an annual basis. You know a lot of the expenditure for you know infrastructure, uh, schools in Singapore, even for healthcare, etc. A lot of that actually gets benefit from that from that cash flow that's generated from our my investment. The second role of this really is, you know, some kind of a rainy day. And so this is, you know, if, if 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 the domestic economy or even the global economy in general kind of goes into gets into trouble, rather than you know having to tap on debt markets in order to to finance extraordinary government expenditure, you know, we can actually make a, a case to draw down on, on on reserves. And we actually did that during the uh, the COVID. Crisis recently. So the Singapore government actually took down around $50 million from GIC, which is one of the largest funds that they have taken down. And and these were used to, you know, support the workers, support businesses while the economy was shut down. And uh, you know, to be honest, it was actually I think a source of pride for for many people working in GIC because, you know, once again, you know, I mean you you You're kind of working for many years and you're kind of building investment returns. And while, you know, that endowment model, you kind of see that benefit getting spent back into the economy every year, you know, these kinds of sudden stop type episodes is where you really see, okay, like now I know, you know, where my hard-earned dollars, if you will, kind of of funnel back. And it goes back to what I I was talking about earlier. Uh, which is that that this kind of this notion of of, of, a, of a higher purpose, if you will, in terms of like, giving back to the to the economy and and the way helping helping the government to kind of manage its public finances.
0: Right. So right now, a lot of really interesting things happening in the world. Inflation uh, is at record levels in developed economies. For example, with Eurozone inflation at four point nine percent. As a result, central banks are facing increasing pressure to take action. What are the next steps that you think that central banks need to take in order to address this concern?
1: Yeah, no, it, uh, you're right. It's, it is indeed a, a challenging period. Inflation is something which you know central banks have not really had to deal with in a meaningful way for quite a while. And the challenge here is that not just that inflation is high, but also that the signals that are coming out of the economy are still very hard to, to fully analyze and that's because the recovery has really been happening at you know what some people call warp speed but at the same time it's been it's been very right. so you know while you have you know some countries the consumption of durable goods are going up very strongly consumption of services are still still down you know the whole complex surrounding you know aviation tourism hospitality these these sectors are still still struggling. And so, you know, for central banks to really kind of navigate I don't I definitely don't don't envy them. I think the recommendations of sorts, I think really need to depend on individual countries. So you mentioned Europe. In my mind, Europe has less of a of a problem, I think, to solve because in some ways this could actually be a really good opportunity, I think, for them to finally, you know, kind of Breakdown of, of of a regime where inflation expectations were very low, and so you know, as as you probably know, inflation expectations as priced in some of the sovereign markets in Europe have really picked up, and to, to you know, in my mind, that's actually actually can be seen as a, as a success. Whereas when you look at Japan, you can see a situation where this kind of low and in fact even negative inflation expectations in some cases really become entrenched, and so you know, for them. There really is no pressure to, to normalize. And in fact, if anything, they, they really want inflation to pick even more. So the challenge really, I think, is, is in the U.S. And uh, that is aggravated by the fact that, you know, for better or for worse, you know, the, the, the international rule of the dollar uh, still puts a lot of emphasis on what the Fed ends up doing. So I think it's great that, that you know, they, they've started the tapering process because you know, going back to that idea of uh, uh, preserving optionality, I think once they get that tapering process done, I think that it gives them better optionality uh, to respond to to changing developments faster because then they have more freedom to, to raise rates uh, sooner.
0: Great. Right. And on the topic of easing inflationary pressures, and you sort of have uh, discussed tapering a little bit, uh, Jerome Powell has indicated his support of a speedier tapering for federal asset purchases. What stance do you expect the Fed to take on this uh, matter And do you agree with this?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think it's uh, it's uh, challenging to call it in the, in the near term. I think the signals that have come out from the Federal Reserve have been that there is some intention to uh, speed up the tapering process. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I think in general, that's a good idea because, you know, it does kind of give them more optionality. In the future if they do want to raise uh, interest rates the tricky part is that you now have the rise of the omicron variant, for which we don't really know much about and you know what's important for that is really not so much the infection rate but just the the health outcomes because a lot of the you know the the reluctance of workers to kind of go back into the labor for has been that, you know, there's, there's a need to, to take care of, of, of whether it's children or whether it's, it's other COVID-related patients or in general, just, just concerns about, about getting COVID themselves. And so I think the law, lo- if, if that really, then I think they are in a, in a much more difficult place and then I think I wouldn't be surprised if they decided to delay that, that decision to, to accelerate the taper.
0: Great. And this brings me to my next question. The uncertainty surrounding the vaccine effectiveness of the Omicron variant has further compounded market volatility, with the VIX rising past its long run average this week. Do you think that investors should continue to expect such high levels of volatility in the near future?
1: Unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. And I think because you're at a point where there is a lot of both cyclical as well as structural uh, changes that are happening. On the cyclical front, as we've just spoken, the policy is tightening. So, you know, at the margin, our central banks are thinking about tightening rather than easing. The fiscal impulse, which, uh, as you know, even if even if governments don't do anything, the impulse will naturally tighten just because it's it's relative to what they did in the past. And so when, when you're entering this kind of uh, change in the policy stance environment, cyclically, this has always been uh, a, a very volatile period, but on the structural, you know, we, we just haven't seen this, this degree of fiscal stimulus, you know, just kind of running through the economy. And I think we still don't really understand, you know, how, how far, how long, you know, how much of, a, of an impact, uh, and how persistent this impact would be on inflation. And then at the same time, you know. China is going through a change in its growth model. You know, it's really thinking about inequality. I think in you know, a more serious, and it is also thinking about this concept of dual circulation, which you know is, is just a very different way of achieving some form of rebalancing in its economy. So, so you know, you have all these major major countries kind of doing both cyclically and structurally. You know, kind of very transformative transformative things. So I, I think, I think yes, the answer is there's going to be a lot of volatility. But one, one message that we have been, you know, kind of telling some of our own portfolio managers here, et cetera, is that even though we are macro cautious, you we know, are quite micro, to get back to, to some of that, that research side that I, that I mentioned you know, falls under my responsibility, that, you know, there are a lot of really interesting and exciting trends, I think, that are happening at the micro level. And I think that is really where, Uh, a lot of the really good investment opportunities are going to arise.
0: Great. And inevitably, when discussing volatility, we have to discuss cryptocurrency. There has been a significant interest in central bank digital currencies. What would you say are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see with this?
1: Yeah, I think that it is probably not controversial to say that, you know, the future of money is going to be. And I think that is a trend that has been happening uh, for a long time. You know, I mean, here in Singapore, even though we don't have a central bank digital currency in the technical sense, a lot of our monetary interactions, not just from a a consumer to business, but also actually consumer to consumer, is all largely digital already. I myself don't don't carry around a lot of cash in in my wallet anymore. So, so, so in that sense, you know, I think, I think that, that trend is, is, is inevitable my My concern with a lot of the discussion on central bank digital currency is that there's too much focus on the technology and not enough focus on on the economics uh, of it because I, I think that's really what is is going to to drive uh, people's behavior and ultimately any concerns you have about you know, disintermediation of the financial sector, et cetera. My own view is, I think when you think about the economics of the issue, I think at the heart of it Uh, is really an issue of control. And it's an issue of control over the, you know, the the issuance of legal tender, control over domestic uh, money supply. In some countries, that's a bigger issue than others. So in the case of China, you know, the dominance of uh, Alibaba and Tencent in the domestic payment system, that suddenly became an issue of uh, of control. Whereas for for most of the other economies, I mean, even if you think about the U.S., the tech giants, they haven't really entered into the payment system in a very meaningful way. So, so it's, it's slightly different, but, but I think, you know, we just need to, to think a lot more about the economics of it and perhaps a bit less on the, the technology.
0: Great. Great. And on this topic of how markets are evolving with the impact of the pandemic, investors are starting to lose faith in the traditional 60, 40 split. What's your personal opinion on the sort of longevity of this method in the future?
1: Yeah, so so the sixty forty I think has has really been the almost gold standard of portfolio construction I think for a while, and you know the biggest reason why it it is the gold standard is just because it's performed phenomenally well, and I think the challenge now is just that the environment going forward I think does pose some challenge to to the sixty forty model, and I can think of 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 two. I think the first going back to what we what I mentioned a bit earlier is just that. Things look expensive across the board, right? So, you know, whether you look at kind of standard valuation ratios or just even uh, where interest rates are right now, you know, it looks like that 60-40 model is just not going to generate as much returns going forward as, as it is, as it has in the past. You know, one good benchmark for expected return on bonds is really just today's interest rates. So if you look at, let's say, the U.S. 10-year treasury, which is trading at about, 145 now, so that's 40 percent of your portfolio that you know is going to give you negative real returns. Let's say over a 10 year period, so that really draws down the the, the overall returns of the, of the portfolio. The second reason I think is that um, bonds may not play the stabilizing role as it did in the past. So in the past, you you typically, especially from the late 1990s, you had a negative correlation uh, between equities and bonds, and that was great for for portfolio construction. When we look forward, I think especially if the source of the shock is going to be inflation, you might end up with a positive correlation between equities and bonds, and that is, you know, every asset allocator's nightmare scenario. And so you're just not going to get that that benefit of, of diversification. But but I think that. You know, the, the overall principle of 60-40, which is, you know, some notion of portfolio construction, some notion of diversification, I think I think that's still it. And so, you know, we should be careful not to throw away the baby with the bathwater in the sense, and I think we just have to be more nimble, we just have to look for alternative diversifiers, but just kind of be more deliberate in thinking about portfolio construction.
0: Definitely. And sort of in a more general sense, what do you think... Uh, will be the key drivers of economic growth in the next decade.
1: Yeah, I, I think the key drivers in 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 a boring sense will really be you know the same drivers that that have held in the past, which is I think demographics and technology. And I think that we are actually at interesting inflection points for for demographic. And you know, it's not just a story of of continental Europe, as as we all know, it's been aging quite uh, a while. Actually, also China, where the you know that 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 labor curve in a way has, has already started to 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 invert. So, so I think that that definitely I think will be will be a big big force. Um, but technology, I think, is is where it goes from the kind of boring to the more <laughs> interesting. And and you know, I, I do think that there is a lot of really exciting technology that that's going on out there. I mean, you know, when you look at the work or the research that's being done on energy transition. I think, you know, within the span of 10 years, the way that, you know, the electricity that we consume is generated is just going to fundamentally change. And, you know, even the way that energy is being stored, is being used, I think it's, 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 it's nothing short of a uh, revolution. Even when we look at this issue of uh, climate change investing, the estimates out there is that there's going to be roughly $5 trillion worth of capital expenditure that needs to be done on an annual basis. Yeah, you know, I mean, at, at today's level, that's about 5% of global GDP every year, right? So it's, it's a phenomenal sum of money. And I think that really is going to be a great source of investment opportunities, but also something that I think fundamentally at the end of the day, really boosts global growth and hopefully in a, in a much more sustainable way.
0: Great. Some very interesting things to look forward to. To wrap things up, is there any advice that you would like to give to university students?
1: Yeah, look, um, you know, I think the the best advice in a way is just to take a course in finance. I think that's, that's uh, you know, not just if you want to have a career in finance, but I think it's also something which will help you in, in many aspects. But I think actually some of the principles you learn in finance, I think you can also apply to yourself. So going back to... One thing I mentioned earlier you know it, it's like diversification and, and building a portfolio I think you can actually even treat your your own set of experiences actually from a portfolio approach uh, so that you know you kind of have a, you know a, a, a good mix of, of experiences from which I think you can you can tap on at, at, at different times in the future. And then the second principle which I mentioned a bit earlier as well is is just to kind of preserve optionality right you know that, that's always a, a nice thing to have in, in a portfolio, and so you know I think that choosing the path which as I mentioned earlier like opens more doors than than it closes i think is is, is a good way of you know, preserving preserving that that optionality so anyway, I think it's an exciting time to be a, to be a student. I always miss my my college days and and now you know you just have, have access to to just so many more things and so much more information. I guess I would end it with uh, really wishing everyone the, the best of luck and uh, you know, good, good success in whatever uh, you choose to do.
0: Thank you. Very interesting time to be a student indeed. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come.